Hey rippers, are you learning how to surf? But have you got a clue? Or are you a big old kook? Since there's a million ways to kook it, you should stick around and learn a thing or two. Because if you don't know, let me tell you right now that surfers love to spot a kook. But don't get all stressed about it, because everyone kooks it once in a while. And that's the reason we started KookCast. Because the more you know, the less you'll kook it. So bust out your swimmies and get ready to learn. KookCast is here to lead you on your journey out of kookdom, one episode at a time. And hopefully, offer you some traction on this slippery slope between kookery and killing it. I'm your host, Coach Chris, and I started the surf coaching and education resource, thesurfcontinuum.com. Make sure you get on there and check out the latest. We've been cycling through some beginner fundamentals. Good stuff, good stuff. You know how we feel about those basics. Make sure they're down pat. This week on the show, oh my goodness, I'm amped. We have such a good guest. You know if you listen to us, Coach Ev and I, we have such a reverence, such a respect for the OGs, the legends, and PT is definitely one of them. We, uh, we were lucky enough to kind of happen on meeting him at a surf expo in San Diego right before all this shit broke out in the world. And uh, he was in the beer garden and we just kind of flagged him down because he didn't look like he had anybody there with him. I think it turned out like he was there with the French surf team, like the Groms, and they were off surfing. So he was in the beer garden just killing time and, and we flagged him down and we were like, come on, come sit with us if you got nobody to sit with. And so he just came right on over, smiling like he had been old pals for years with us. And uh, we just chilled and hung with PT. It was like pretty surreal for us. You know, like I said, we have such a major respect for these guys, the old timers, the legends that we were just like in awe. So long story short, I couldn't let him go without letting him know that we have a podcast and he should definitely come on. And I felt like I was taking a shot in the dark until he was so agreeable to it he was like yeah absolutely i'll come on epic that sounds great we exchanged numbers we uh we had to go race up to huntington because he originally said no i can't do it next week but i only had next week before i had to go to the east coast um we race up there with two mics for three people because coach ev can't find his goddamn microphone that's what you get when two surfers try and start a podcast and uh well we just post up in this little bar that he likes got a couple drinks and talk story all good stuff. It was really such an honor. Just special thank you to Peter for for taking the time out to to chat with us. We're we're not like somebody's, you know, we're just some no names in this industry. So it was super cool of him to to take that time. Uh, I want to note before we let this thing rip that PT, I didn't realize it, or I mean, I knew this, but I didn't realize until we were talking in the episode that he was one of the finalists of the 74 Smirnoff Pro at Waimea, like a, a iconic, iconic contest that was almost canceled because it was so goddamn big, but it was also so perfect that they just had to run it. And Reno ended up winning that contest, and I, I actually got to meet Reno and record an episode with him. You're going to have to go back and check it out if you hadn't listened. But uh, So this marks two of the six finalists in the 74 Smirnoff Pro, a story that just for some reason really struck a chord with me. I read, I read the story in multiple publications and, and a book called The Big Drop, so I really felt connected to the story, and I just love the way that story is told and, and how it went down. 
And uh, so anyway, yeah, that was just a cool little side piece for me to just be like epic. Now I'm got to find Jeff Hackman and, and a couple of the other guys that were in that that final with him. All right, should we just let this thing rip? You're going to have to pardon the audio quality. As I said, you know, it kind of gets into my OCD that it wasn't really well done, but it's just too gold to ever not release something like this. I mean, you should just let it feel like you're sitting right there with us. Pour yourself a drink and enjoy. So, like, how did you get, how did you get to Huntington Beach? Married a girl from Fountain Valley. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering that. How did you get so deeply entrenched? I mean, 40, there's anything 40 years go now. anywhere. And I, I think we were talking about that on the weekend in that um, my daughter, I'm just going to Australia this week because my daughter turns 40. And so she was homecoming queen at Huntington Beach High School. Oh, so it doesn't get more American than that, right? <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> so, and even though I, I don't have an American passport, I still have an Australian passport and, uh, and have a resident alien green card, just like, just like you do, because yeah. I married an American. And she, uh, she's going to turn 40, so she was born in 1980. And I had met her mum on the North Shore the year I became world champ. And, uh, and then the next year, I got the call from Hollywood from Milius and McGillery to come do Big Wednesday. And so I called her up coming over here and said, hey, listen, I'm going to California and then I'm going to El Salvador for a couple of months to make this movie, you wanna go? No way. And so she met me at the airport and uh, she went to El Salvador on the Big Wednesday shoot and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize that they shot Big, uh, Big Wednesday in El Salvador. The first two months were in El Salvador. No way. Yeah. All right. If you guys want to, at some point in time, I do this, it, it, have a fun night with the mates, uh, I show Big Wednesday with a microphone and tell you what really went on. Oh, <laughs> we love that. <laughs> who, Definitely. Who, Definitely. La who laid who amongst the actors and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and all the shit that went on around the scenes, you know, that right. you don't see. but there's some pretty incredible stuff that happened in making that movie because I spent what I spent an entire year and part of that time in that year living with Jan Michael Vincent in Malibu and that that was because of a friendship that I had met Jan at the ranch in 72 and that's how I ended up in Big Wednesday and Big Wednesday changed my life because of that I ended up here forever wow, right, right. <laughs> okay so that brought you here to yeah. to to shoot yeah, well, I came here for I came here as William Katz double. Originally, Jan wanted me. It was Jan who suggested to Milius McGilvery. I'd just become the world champ, and uh, and I was in Australia. And our first event was going to be the Stubbies, the first man-on-man -man competition in pro surfing history. Yeah. And I get a call from uh, McGilvery saying, "Hey, listen, uh, I want you to come over to California. We want you to work on this movie." And uh, and I was came over and I was meant to be Jan Michaels double because Jan wanted me because of my style you know like and, and, and we had a friendship but when I got here and I went to see Milius in Warner Brothers the same day William Cat came in to, for it, he was still not cast as Jack Barlow and we happened to be in the green room and Milius is at the same time and Milius came out and saw the two of us and we looked like twin brothers and he went no, no, this is Jack Barlow right here. We got to find somebody else for Jan. Jan was kind of bummed, but in the end, they found Jay Riddle, who's a great surfer too from Malibu, and and that, that was kind of cool because you know 
the whole thing's based around Malibu. And Jan was way physically so much like Jan anyway. So it worked out anyway. And, and, uh, and that's, that's what happened. We spent two months in El Salvador. Um, we had uh, two months at the ranch, live, living in Lompoc and getting bussed in every day. And then two months on the North Shore where they would clear the water at sunset and we were the only ones allowed out surfing pe perfect 15 foot sunset. No right? way. How, do, how does Hollywood get the permission to do that? And not you hire the hooey. Shit from the no, you hire oh, the hooey. Oh, that's, that's how you do it. <laughs> they were hired to make sure that we didn't get into any trouble. Oh. Hire the heavies. There's, there's your, your hint. Which, which, if you think about it, you know, the guys, when, when I told them I was, I was not going to go to the next event after the stubbies, everyone was going, you can't, you can't leave, leave the tour, you're the number one in the world, you're the champ, you got to defend. I go, no, I'm going to Hollywood, they're going to pay me a grand a week. That's a lot of money back in those days, way more than we were making from being pro surfers. Right, right. And, I still get, and I still get checks today, you know, some 40 years later, I still get big Wednesday checks, you know. Oh, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Stoked to hear that for you too. You know, it's just nice to hear people like still riding on success. You know, yeah. and, and the things you've done. I mean that that whole thing, the Big Wednesday thing, made me much larger than life with my peer group. You know, like from you point were of view, right? Hollywood. Yeah, I was yeah. in Hollywood. You yeah, know? especially because I feel like at the time, surfing really—how big was it, really? Well, world, you got to realize the there was no social media or right. internet or anything. Yeah. It was surf movies and you know surf mags. That's it. Mm. So getting it out was really tough. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like some very cool shit was going down, but oh, it was yeah. hard to share it. You know, yeah. with just surf publications and things. And like and, that. and pro surfing was in its infancy and. You know, there, were, there was no webcast or anything. You, you read about a contest like three months later in the magazine and saw the results, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even I remember like when, when the webcast started happening and it was all glitchy and delayed and stuff, but it was still like, oh my God, what? Well, you guys are also going? old enough to know that here in California, we were fortunate to live through the Bud Surf Tour, which was on TV, you know, like with Prime Ticket, which was the really first where there was regular competition surfing on TV. Even though it wasn't live, it was turned around pretty quick. I mean, we would do the shows live to tape on the, on the weekend, and within 10 days, they would put it on Wet and Wild Wednesdays, they called it, oh, right? <laughs> and so you'd see it 10 days later, which, you know, which was incredible in that. It, this is the like late 80s and early 90s, you know? And, but the problem back then with the, with the tour was they didn't really go through all the, they didn't have the money or whatever to get you guys in really good, good waves, right? Well, no, it was, the Bud Surf Tour was all in California, and then above that was still the, the, the ASP. Right. Uh, and, but, but here in California, that's where all those guys, Slater, Machado, uh, Shane Dorian, Shane Beshin, those guys all really got their start in competitive surfing on the Bud Surf Tour on Prime yeah. Ticket. Yeah. So they had And guys like Chris Brown, the late Chris Brown, he was bigger than the guys on tour because he was winning all the stuff on, on, on television, right? Right, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guys were somewhere in the world and nobody knew, right? <laughs> but every Wednesday night, you could catch Chris Brown you know, winning something on the Bud Surf Tour. Right, it's, it's marketing is such a big part of it, huh? It's just well, like yeah. image, you know? Now it's, that's all forgotten because, you know, like, geez, surf magazines don't even exist. And, and when was the last time we, you know, went to a theater to see a surf movie, right? right, right, right. <laughs>
Yeah, it really has changed a lot. Now it's like 60 second, 30 second. You know, yeah, there, there, there was a, uh, a group of people the other night because uh, Surfing Heritage is doing their gala this year based on the filmmakers. And they had a panel of eight guys that, everywhere from Ira Opa down to Taylor Steele, you know, with, and, and, and they were talking about where it's all gone. And, and Ira Opa said the best thing, making movies hasn't changed. It's a technological change. It's how you see it now. We 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 are still trying to make surf movies, <laughs> but but it's but not distributed. The consumption and the distribution is not the same. It's a te technological change. Right. Our attention span has shortened <laughs> so much to where it's only like you can only pay attention for thirty seconds, sixty seconds. Right. I I still love the long classics, you know, busting down the door. Right. I mean, that's I think when when you're a true surfer, you just want every bit of it that you can, you know. And you just yeah, I mean, I, I I have a little TV company with my friend Dan uh, Dan Foot called Verb TV, and last night we were together and we've just downloaded a bunch of and digitized a bunch of the classics like Pacific Vibrations, Wave Warriors One, Wave Warriors Three. And then, uh, and, and one of my all-time favorites, you guys might not have ever seen it, it's called Adrift by Jay Brother. Oh, it's about yeah. Joel Tudor, and, and, and it's, all slow, yeah. it's all slow motion with classical music where, and if you want to get stoked on going for a longboarding session, this is like the ultimate one to watch. John knows that film like it's so all, well. It's all shot at La Jolla Shores in like two foot waves, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's all slow motion and the footwork and the, Trim, just beautiful trim, you when know. When you understand what's going on, you really appreciate yeah. it, you know. Well, that, that, you know, except, except for the hipster revival, the art of trim has been lost, you know, like from the point of the young guys. They, when we, when I started, and, then, and, and it wasn't, you guys probably started shortboarding before you maybe longboarding, but, yeah. but, but the thing is, is when we started, you, the first thing you had to learn how to do was trim. So that you can make the wave. Set your rail. <laughs> yeah. Set your rail. Right. We call it setting your rail. Like so you didn't, you didn't even, even try to think about turns. You right, took off right. and tried to get to the green shoulder and put it in trim. First. Especially where I grew up, we got, you know, the Zipper. super, super bank and cure. If you didn't learn how to trim, you didn't make any waves. <laughs> 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 oh, I love that because that's exactly what we're teaching our students, you know, it's like one of the first things you need to learn how to do is set your rail and right. hold your line, keep your trim and just make it to the shoulder, you know, and, and uh, oh, that's, that's and brilliant. We, we learn that shit on boogie boards, right? You know? so like most, a lot of beginner surfers, they skip that step of playing in the shore break and getting beat up and riding boogie board, foam boards, whatever. Well, trays, even in whatever. our day, we grew up on what we call surfer planes, blown up rubber mats. Yeah. That's how we all the started mats. standing up in Australia. We were on, you rented them, it was like 25 cents for the day, right? Yeah. <laughs> rented them, still. And we'd, we'd, we'd go over and con the guy that had the mats to pump them up to hit harder so they were stiffer, right? Yeah. Otherwise, the regular people, they gave them soft so that they, they felt, you know, comfortable. But we wanted them blown up hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. But they, they run them soft, though. They yeah. run them soft. Right, right, they run them soft for the tourists. Right. But all the groms, we wanted them blowing up hard, you know, so they'd trim. <laughs> It's, good. Oh, it's, right it's the steps you you can't skip that stuff. No. like you, your your surfing journey is has been compromised. Like, and I think one of the things that's lost in all of that too is is the groms today. 
and the parents are a little bit responsible. They think because you have a lease, it's a safety net. So they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't learn the true techniques. Like you had to learn those techniques, otherwise you're swimming after every wave, you right? You had to learn board control. <laughs> yeah, you had absolutely. You to be able to fucking keep hold of that thing the <laughs> exactly. whole time. And so unless you learned that, you were swimming after every wave, right? Brilliant. Brilliant. PT, it's so fun and exciting to hear you touching on these things that like, yeah, we're well, so even, adamant about. You even know? today when I coach, you know, when I coach at a, at a shortboard world-class level, I have, usually the first session, is I get these little little soft boards and I, no leashes and I make them go out and have to ride and I have a competition to see who's best on, on these boards, right? And, and, and it's hilarious. The, the guys that, the, it, you learn something straight away. The guys that take it seriously, because those little boards, those little, you know, hard-edged soft boards that are like six feet long, they, they, they catch the edges really easy. And if you're not paying attention, right? Because they stand, they stand up straight away and try to do a turn or something, and so you got to get it in trim before you even think about putting it into a turn. Otherwise, you just bury the thing and over the handlebars. <laughs> and you are swimming. And you're swimming. Fail. <laughs> you're swimming and you're not surfing. You right. Know, so and you're not like getting a score on my score sheet. You know. <laughs> proponents of that just yeah. just that like yeah do the basics well don't endanger everybody around you have, you know have fun but hold on to your board oh yeah and figure it out figure out how to do it and, and how to do it on all different types of boards and if, if you prioritize certain things like that then your surfing really grows and you can take it to wherever you want yep and that, that brings me to like a point that we just wrote down as we were just preparing to talk to you is your method for coaching. We're so curious about, do you have like a template or like that was a great insight. Do you just send them all out? All these pro level well, no, guys yeah, on soft tops. Look, look, a lot of, most of the time if I'm coach, I mean I've coached, at the, I was the coach of the Dwyer Middle School surf team for 10 years when my boys were there. Okay. So you're down where people are beginning and stuff. So that's different to when all of a sudden I'm coaching, say, the U.S. National Junior Team, mm -hmm. because their skill set's already at a certain, certain level, and it becomes a little bit more of a mental coaching than it is a, a maneuver coaching, because who am I to tell some kid how to do an aerial rotation? I've never done one in my life. <laughs> right? I've only ever got air by accident. If I, <laughs> right? And so, and so for me to try and tell them how to do it. You know, if I want somebody like that, I'm going to bring somebody to talk to them about that. But where I where I try to focus kids on is is what I call the 20 minute rule. You can show me all the video clips and tell me all this stuff all day long, but unless you can do it in 20 minutes, it don't matter. It's got to be turnkey. You got to be able to do what you can do in 20 minutes, and and not try to do the stuff that you can't do 90 percent. You know what your strengths are and use those strengths until you learn. It's just like NBA players that in the off-season go out and learn how to shoot the three-point shot better, right? So they get, same thing. In your off-season, you figure out, well, what maneuver aren't I doing well and how am I going to do that so that I can compete with the other guys, you know? And, and it's the same thing. And then I have a, another one that I, that I implemented. And, I've kind of gone through this with coaching the Chinese national team for a couple of years because they're right at the infancy. There's a couple of okay surfers, but they're still so far from the, the quality you need to be. And I call it the two plus one rule. In that 20 minute heat, you only need two scores. 
right? So after you get those two scores, mentally remember what they are, because the third one needs to be better than the first two, or one of the first two. And don't go on a wave that's not going to give you that score that's better than the first two. Just don't go. Right. You're wasting your time and you're letting the other guy or the other guys have the lineup. Right, right. <laughs> don't give the lineup up. Control the lineup. Right. right? And, and make sure that that third wave is better than the... And, and if you think about it in 20 minutes, particularly in, you know, in four-man format, which there's a lot of when you're, gro when you're growing up, it's not all man-on-man -man when you're coming through the system, is that... If you get three good waves in 20 minutes, you're doing pretty good against four guys. Yeah, right. that's, that's hustling right, right there. And so don't waste that. Right? And so the two plus one rule, and I've had tremendous success with kids with that, just get drilling that in their, in their head. Simplifying, right. keeping it simple so that they can understand, okay, right. you got your two. Now you're gonna add one, right. but it needs to be better. And then, and then the, the other two. one that I use, particularly for for training mental, is I I send them out, uh, and usually not in heats. I'll just send if I'm training, say a squad of eight, they all go out where we're at, and a lot of times you're in the middle of the crowd. It's not, it, it, which teaches you to get in position, and you've got unlimited time, but you're only allowed to catch two waves. And after you've got your two waves, you got to come in. And it teaches you to be patient, to pick the waves that are going to get my two scores, because I count the two scores, right? <laughs> and, the waves are usually and, then, and then when they all come in, I use the extension of three, two plus one by allowing them now to go out and get, you got one more chance to improve, right? And then I keep track of the scores of all of that, and that, and I, and I let them know, and, and if you do that often enough, eventually, in a heat, they get mentally like that. And where all the other guys are taken off on whatever's coming through, they sit and be patient and only get good waves that are going to give them a good scoring opportunity. <laughs> so now bring us back to like the high school level and, and when you're just dealing with kids who maybe have been surfing up until then or even just starting in high school, what are your approaches for these, these kids in, in learning to surf? You're still, you're still using some of that same technique, you know, and, and, uh, and, and you, you need a lot of times, it's just repetition, experience, many conditions sending them out when it looks like it's crazy to even think about sending them out you know like early NSSA days we'd take the kids to Hawaii like the era of Mike Parsons and and uh, and Gerlach and Todd Holland and that and we'd take them to Hawaii and it'd be 10 foot sunset like crazy you know like on shore and I'd call Bobby Owens and Sean Thompson up to come make sure I have a few extra buddies and we'd send them out there and they would just get the crap beat out of them but the only way you're going to conquer the North Shore is that's what's got to happen. You get, you're going to get the crab beat out of you, and until you get over, until you get over that, <laughs> I didn't die. <laughs> I lived through it. I got caught inside a 12-foot sunset, and I'm still here, right? <laughs> that's but what I tell myself when I'm caught inside. I'm right. like, oh, it's not as big as PT got right. caught inside. I'm going to be fine. He lived. Right. I'm going to be fine. And until you, until that, until you put in that situation you're just never going to be comfortable out there and therefore if you're not then you're not going to get better the better waves if you end up having to compete out there I mean 
a, a good example of that is this last year in qualification for the WCT. You know, no Americans made it this year. No one qualified. It was all Brazilians, Australians, and one Portuguese. And the one guy that was close to getting there was Jake Marshall, and he didn't make it because he didn't have experience at Sunset. He, he went out there and Sunset was good size, but good Sunset, you know, 10, 12 feet. And he never got the, the ways because he never got in a position because it didn't, didn't look like he was comfortable out there. Completely different than anything that he serves right. on a regular basis. Right. But you got to know that you're going to. But gonna you got to. Yeah, your but you got, the ring. Well, you saw the announcement yesterday. They're going to have the Olympic Games in, in 2024 at Chopu. Yeah. Come on. People are going to die. As good as the girls are, the chicks are these days. Oh my God. How are they going to serve Chopu? It just depends on what the conditions are. Bethany right? Hamilton can probably win Chopu. Yeah. Yeah, she can. She might cut her off the barrel. What a charger she is. Kiala Kennelly can make a comeback, right? That's right. <laughs> well, there's a, a couple of recent videos of like uh, Caroline Marks and uh, uh, who was the other one that was just there? Um, well, Carissa Moore was surfing uh, yeah. Chopu. And I mean, they look all right. Well, that, those they, girls are already smart. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, Caroline is what I call a little female hockey. She's going to win a world title. She's that. She's only 17. Oh my God, she's already so good <laughs> in, in all kinds of ways. So for her already to take herself to Chopu, when, you know, they don't even compete, the chicks don't even compete there yet. But just to get used to that, right? <laughs> If you're going to be competing on the, in the Olympics, then you better have some sort of... Right. Well, she could win the Olympics in Japan, in Tokyo. She's really good in the little beach breaks, and she's one of the few girls that actually can do the aerials at the moment. There's only a handful that can, you know, like uh, Courtney, uh, the, the, the girl from Ventura, uh, that nearly won the world title. Lakey. Lakey, yeah. That, there's only a few of them who can actually... Carissa. Carissa's doing yeah. it. Yeah, they throw big spray and they can do right. aerials and they can definitely ride the two. Right. So. It'll be interesting though because the Olympics, is, it's a worldwide thing, so it's not going to just be those top girls that we know, right? Like how many, yeah, how but, many countries have a surfer in Yeah, but, yeah, but you, t you guys tell me. It's going to be in conditions like Huntington Beach. That's kind of what this place they're going to is. Oh, in, oh Japan, but I'm yeah. just talking about Chopu. Well, no, I'm talking about Japan. Who's going to beat Medina and Natalo in, in those conditions? Right, right, I remember right, the yeah. first event of last year in the WSL at Duramba. Remember it was in the Duramba beach break? Yep. Those guys were unstoppable. There wasn't even anyone close to them. That's what they, that's what they go crazy over. That's, what, that's their stuff, right? That's what well, they yeah, but the, gone are the days where they don't own the real stuff. Either look at Natalo and Medina this year. That was the final pipeline in real pipeline doing giant airs and getting super pitted. No longer are the Brazilians like, oh, they can't surf the real stuff. What did they do at Jay Bay last year, right? Two of them on their back end, right? Unreal. Eight to ten foot Jay Bay. Really impressive. And, and that goes, that's, that goes, that makes me think of their mentality, their tenacity, their dedication, commitment to the sport. They love it. They love it more. They they dig it. No, more. they're hungry. They're hungrier. Yeah. <laughs> hungry like a lion. 
that's what we're always trying to figure out like what makes a surfer like what's the difference between those half-hearted surfers well, I, and people I, who the, are really the, dedicated the problem with the california thing for such a long time until with the nssa there was a generation that came along with curran and parsons and that crew was the silver spoon treatment it was all too easy and it's kind of gone that way again now is the young kids you know the, the potential future guys that could make the tour they're already on you know near six-figure contracts with the company so how hard do you have to try they haven't even made it yet <laughs> they don't have the carrot dangling you know right. if they've already got the carrot so why not so if you're go? a kid if you're a kid from brazil it's the way out of the projects you know <laughs> that's the difference yeah. most of our kids aren't coming from the slums Right. No, they. It's like it's not a soccer mom anymore. It's the surf mom yeah. ferrying them to the beach every day. The newest boards. The I mean, look, shit, look, look at Italo's story. It's incredible how he got to where he is. You know, mm. and before him, Fabio Gavea. You know, he came from the favela. That he would catch a catch a bus, catch a bus with one, catch a bus with you know a beat up little surfboard on the back of a bus for like 15 miles every day just so he could surf. And went on before the Brazil storm that currently is, you know, it was Fabio Gouveia and, and Flavio Paterans. Those guys were the, the forerunners of that's, that. That's the difference right there. Right. I mean, you said it, you know. And they, 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 they want to get out of the favelas. <laughs> so before, um, just today, I was just chatting with Matt Warshaw just for a quick second because I told him we were going to be linking up with you. And I was like, oh, you got to give me something good to ask. <laughs> BT. So, Washer knows all the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> well, he didn't give me any dirt. He just gave me some good little, little things to ask. And by the way, he says hi. But um, he said that you know a lot of people considered you to be conservative, but actually you rode some pretty cutting edge and shaped some pretty wild boards. You know, and and you like riding the twin before MR. Well, what's that all about? Tell us about some boards and early. Well, it actually wasn't shape. riding the twin before MR, but we. It, the biggest difference is you got to remember back in our era. Half of the guys on tour that were in the upper echelon, which was the top 16, we were shaping and riding our own boards. Right. And we all had a different theory on what worked and what didn't work. Mm. You know, and like I was riding actually, I was riding diamond tail single fins most of the time. But also, uh, I came to California uh, to see GNS San Diego because I was working shaping for GNS Australia. And I came over and I met Skip Fry. And, he, and I had surfed against the fishes in the world contest in 72 against Blears and the Weaver, but I was on a single fin that, that worked good. I finished up coming third in that world contest. And, and then Michael Ho and Bertelman were on Swallowtails. That was the final of that world contest in 72. Swallowtails single fins? Swallowtails Ipers. Yep. You know, that was Ben Iper. <coughs> and then, uh, and then I, I met Skip Fry and he, the day I was down there, he was in the shaping room and he was shaping a fish. And, uh, and he was telling me what it was all about, and I knew about them, I just never tried one. So I went back home and I made a fish, but I didn't, I didn't put it as a twin fin. I put a big single with tri-fins on the outside, only I had the format wrong. I didn't, I, I, Simon's one of my best mates. We've been surfing against each other since schoolboy competition. And I said, if I only figured to put the center fin back, and I had the center fin forward of the two uh, <laughs> I had it the wrong way around I go Simon I would have been the thruster guy <laughs> and, and so I wasn't really a twin fin guy although the boards looked like twin fins but and I was a big bonzer guy 
So I was multi fin for sure. Right. And then and then I did this thing in the early eighties called the bifin, which was offset asymmetrical. Where one side of the board was a pintail, your forehand turn, and the other side was a twin fin. It was two fins, but one big single, and it wasn't the, the V wasn't in the stringer, the V was offset, so the whole board was offset. Bitching. Right, with a single fin. And then on this side, and this is before Simon had done the thruster. So my actual backside turn was feeling like a thruster. Because yeah. now I had that single fin back with the other fin forward. forward. But I didn't have the front side piece figured out. If I flipped it over and did it, I would have had it again. <laughs> I screwed it up twice. <laughs> <laughs> that is so but, but that good. was a new, we, we were having a really good laugh the other day, some of us, about imagine if the top 34 had a contest where they had to make their own board. That would be great. See what happens then. They all had to go in the shaping room and, and, and shape their own board. That would be awesome. <laughs> and see how it would turn out. I mean, I, 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 I'm thinking because I'm, you know, I'm one of the founders of WSL and of the seven we've been I'm thinking of because they would listen to what we say I'm thinking of suggesting that as a specialty event for the WSL where everyone has you to go in, in the shape you go in the shaping room right and yeah you, you have to shape with no help from your freaking Darren Hanley's or your right. <laughs> or yeah, Matt Biolis's right <laughs> that's great and so what were you writing when you won the World Tour in 76. I was writing mostly my own Diamond Tales and then uh, and then in Hawaii I was writing Tom Parrish's because the, the hardest thing is when you shape and short boards a lot and not shaping guns for the North Shore because in those days we, 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 we didn't ride these places on six foot six boards we were all riding seven feet seven six seven ten for Sunset and and and, and Pipeline and Halle Eva um, and, and if you don't shape those bigger blanks often enough, you can't see the right lines and curves. So we would work with guys like Tom Parrish. I, I mean, the best big board I ever shaped was a 7.6 diamond tail that went unreal in Hawaii. Uh, but once you got beyond that, you know, for big sunset and Waimea and stuff, you just didn't have the eye for it. So you got those guys. And for me, as long as they were pink, it was fine. <laughs> that's right. Well, you got you to tell us about that. What's, what's the pink theme? What, you know, that's been a common thread for you. And a funny story is we both, our first shape, uh, first surfboards we ever both first shaped turned out pink by accident because we wanted them to be red. We just didn't mix enough pigment in it, you know? <laughs> so we ended up having these pink boards. Bright-ass fuchsia. So know, the, like, the pink story's breakfast, 1969. I come from big family. I'm the oldest of six brothers and sisters. When you grow up in a Victorian family back in that time, breakfast gets served by mum in the morning before school and everybody's at the, at the breakfast table. You, you, there's no excuse. You got, unless you're in bed dying from sickness, you got to be at breakfast for mum to serve breakfast. So I, I'm sitting at the end of the breakfast table because I'm the oldest. And, uh, and now it, it, I'd been surfing for a while and I'd had a blue board, I'd had a yellow board, I'd had an orange board. And, uh, and I go, mum, I'm getting a new surfboard. And, and I wasn't hot yet. I was, you know, like, I think I'd only competed in, in 69 in, in the Queensland titles and, and I lost straight away. And I said to my mother, I'm going to get a new board, mum. What colour should I get this new board? And she says, you know what, son? You should get this next board hot pink. 
and that way they'll never miss you. <laughs> Which was a pretty brave thing to do if you think about when yeah, I'm going to yeah. get my board bright pink, right? So I go around to Joe Larkins who built my boards in those days as the first manufacturer in, in Kira and in the Gold Coast. And uh, I get, I, he, Joe goes, you sure you want to get it hot pink? I said, yeah, yeah, do it. So I get this hot pink board. It was a uh, six feet, single fin. And on that board, that next year, I come second in Queensland in the juniors. And, uh, and you know, that's like, say, coming second in California. And I get to be in the Australian Championships as a router on the Queensland team. And I went, shit, this pink thing's working. <laughs> it's got to be the board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so, so then, then it became pink. You know, and, and you know, I, I mean, I had a couple of white ones, and but the majority of the boards for then till history have been pink. You know, great story. That's a good one. And then, and then, of course, the extension of that is that. So around, people started to notice that I was pink surfboards because I was getting pictures in the mags and stuff. And and then in the in the mail in the box when I'm working in Sydney at Gordon and Smith comes this box from Alan Green, the founder of Quicksilver. And inside are these pink, black waistband quicksilvers, the original scallop legs, which I still have one pair. Can only get them over one leg these days. I don't fit, <laughs> <laughs> they don't fit anymore, but I still have the, one of the original pairs oh, in that shit. box. Oh. And in those days, you know, we weren't sponsored or anything. You know, like you got free trunks and a free wetsuit. You thought things were great. Yeah, so I took those pink quicksilvers to Hawaii that winter, not 1974. And that was the winner of the giant Smirnoff, the 30 to 40 foot Smirnoff. And I got in the final and I was wearing those pink trunks. I wasn't on a pink board though, I was on a yellow board because I didn't have a big gun. And I went up to Tom Parrish's and he had a beautiful yellow gun with no wax on it. And I talked him out of it that it let me ride it that day. And I went, I went to the finals wearing that pink trunks. The next thing that happened, the very first poster that was in Surfing Magazine ever at me is a Dan Merkel shot of me dropping in on a massive, you know, 30 foot Waimea with pink trunks. That's so cool. <laughs> and, 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 and then, and then Two years after that, I'm at Rocky Point and I get a fold-out cover of Surfer Magazine. Pink trunks, pink board, and for the first time, the Surfer Magazine was pink. Right? And then today, people send me pink stuff. Like, I get pink watches, pink socks. They just think of you when they see the color. These are pink socks right here, look. That's a great story, though, the, how, how the 74 so I, Smirnoff. I should have trademarked pink. I would have made some money. <laughs> I feel like you kind of did. Like, right? You did trademark it, but you just and didn't it, and it's it. And it's the number one question I get asked by people. Are you still riding pink surfboards? Uh, I swear to God, that's the, num the number one question I get. Still riding pink surfboards? <laughs> I just have to bring you back to that 74 Smirnoff, the pro contest, because we got to speak to uh, Reno. Uh, and I just found them randomly in Puerto Rico. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. Who. Ran into him, and uh, he told that story. And I've known it from the big drop. I read it, you know, in all different versions of it. Well, the the, the people that made the final that day will always be bonded because we just had Hackman here the other night for uh, for a uh, I do a thing called on the couch, where I have someone on the couch like James Lipton in the actor's studio, and uh, and he was on the couch, and we were talking about day. So that final is Reno. Mm -hmm. He wins. Uh, Hackman is second, Clyde Aikau, me, Sam Hawke, 
and James Booby Jones. That's with the final, right? Unbelievable. <laughs> that was such a, he had so many cool little insights. He said like at one of that those waves, Jose Angle was paddling in behind him and he pulls back to, and tells Reno, go boy, go. And uh, oh man, just all these little background stories was just so cool to hear straight from one of the finalists. Yeah, I mean, that, those are the bit. Yeah, that's that, those are the bit. Those are the biggest <laughs> waves I've ever been out in my life. Like, oh yeah. Reno said uh, nobody was paddling in the jaws or anything like that. There was nothing bigger than Waimea in those days. Right. There, there was no Nazare or any of this. You know, that wasn't going on. It was on that level, like as big yeah. as that place gets, monumental swell. Yeah, and, and, and people go, you know, they ask you, and we've, we've all talked about it, and people go, were you scared? And I go, anyone that says they weren't scared that day's lying. Because <laughs> yes, there were sets coming through in the semifinals, and I won my semifinal. Unpredictable. Nobody thought I'd have a hope in hell of winning the semifinal. I think I was with Al Chapman and freaking James Jones, and I won it on this one wave, which was maybe the biggest wave I'll ever take off in my life. And, and I got, in those days, it was a 20-point scoring system. It wasn't 10 points. And I got 18 out of 20 for that wave, and it sent me to the final. Boom. You know? One wave. Right. <laughs> Incredible. That's such a story. And I, I remember from the book that how they almost didn't even, they almost called the contest off in the morning, no? No, no. Some of us had never been there. Like, guys like BK and Lopez had never even been out there on... And, we, and here's guys like me and Mike Purple's on the beach going, you kidding, right? <laughs> we, we just saw, we just saw a, the conditions were perfect. I mean, it was offshore and beautiful. But we're standing there on the beach and Fred Emming's dead head. Fred's looking at it and going, and we see one set come through and close out the whole freaking bay. Like, and we're going, and he goes, we're doing it. <laughs> and thank God I wasn't in the first heat, the guinea pig. I was in the second semi. It was down to the three semi-finals. And you had to get in the first two to get in the, in the six-man final. Right? Because MR was in the guinea pig heat. And he got third. And he'll tell you, it's the only time in my life that I didn't want to hear my name in second or first. Because <laughs> he's even younger. See, because he's younger than me. He's like three years younger than me. So... MR at that point's like 19, you know, like. Right, so what are you? You're 21. I'm 22. 22? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Holy fuck. Equally scared shitless. That's fucking rad. Oh my god. Should and I then I surfed Waimea and Connors many yeah, my times. Card's there. My card's behind the bar. Yeah, cool. Out. Can I get you something, PT? I'm still going, working on this one. All right. I'll get Come one. On, pick it up. <laughs> I'm drinking my peanut butter whiskey. Yeah, you might have to throw that one over the. Well, she gave me a full one. Uh, she gave me a full one. You know, like. Is it just whiskey? Is nothing mixed nothing, in there? Nothing. Just Tastes straight like up. Butterscotch. Straight up. What are you drinking? Uh, same thing. Oh, good stuff, PT. It's so fun. Good hangs. I'm I'm so stoked that out of out of those six finalists, now we've had two of them on the show. Reno is what have you have you been in touch with him at all or I call him the Prince of Darkness. He's yeah. in he's, he's not in well he wasn't there wasn't good stuff going on in Puerto Rico either. No, no. And now he's on the north back on the north shore and yeah. I don't hear good things and uh. and he's a long-time mate of mine, you know, like yeah. and he and he's just been a mess from a point of view, you know, he should be one of the most recognized and 
famous surfers in the world in the same category as Jerry Lopez. Right, right, right. right. But he can't help himself, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a shame to, to start kind of seeing into his life a little bit more in the background. It's like, damn, you know? I mean, look at the difference with what you're doing now and you're still like doing new things and endeavoring and, and building a life through the surf I, industry. And, I have this saying, I go, yeah, you know, like as famous as I've become, not only as, as a surfer, but in the business world. I mean, God, I've been the president of SEMA, the Surfing Industry Manufacturing Station. I was a publisher of Surfing Magazine. I've had just as great business career as I had as a surfing career. And some guys can't transfer that over. Right, right, right. They struggle to transfer that over. And my favorite saying is, is you're only as good as what you did yesterday. Mm. You know, like, so I'm always trying to do new stuff. I mean, look at this whole thing where I was the Olympic coach, you know, of China, like one of the most powerful nations in the world, <laughs> you know, and, and that's just recently, you know. <laughs> so I'm always trying, you know, to, and, and, and I, I, I still, the only thing I don't do as much as I should is I don't surf as much as I should. But you get to a point, well, in, in the movie Big Wednesday, if you remember the movie, there's the great scene when the swell is coming, Big Wednesday, and Matt Johnson's got the pickup truck with the big the balsa board sticking out the back, and he goes up to Mrs. Barlow's house, remember, and knocks on the door. Mrs. Barlow comes to the door, Jack, it's so great to see you. And they start talking a little bit about family, and you're still with Peggy, yeah, I married her. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Mrs. Barlow goes, uh, you're still surfing, Matt. And uh, yeah, Ms. Barlow, that's, that, that, that's, that's uh, why I'm here. I'm looking for Jack because there's a swell. Well, he's up at the ranger station. So you're still surfing then? Yeah. And, and he goes, yeah, only when necessary. And that's me now. <laughs> I'm going to do a t-shirt with that because I have the one that says, uh, stay casual Barlow. Remember when, when Freddy Krueger walks out and tells when he's going to Vietnam, right? Stay casual Barlow. So the next one's going to be, Surfing only when necessary. <laughs> oh, cheers. Here's cheers to that. Uh -huh. Yeah, we kind of, we talk about that. You know, you get you get to a point where you've logged enough hours to where you can finally start to blur that line to where you say, okay, I'm gonna hold off today. You know, I'm gonna go like do some stretching or something like that or take care of some business whereas you know really anybody who's trying to learn to surf they can't afford to take one day no, it's like Tom Carroll said if you're going to get any good at it you got to do it every day <laughs> there it is right? every fucking day every day and think about it all day and, and when, and when you get to where I'm at you know I'm going to be 67 you know in another month is, is it's it's, uh, it needs to be civilized. You know, you're not getting up at dawn patrol anymore. And, you know, right? You, you, it, sun's got to be out, right? The condition's got to be good, you know? I ain't, I ain't taking my 10 and 11 footers out if it's blown out because that'll be the worst nightmare of all time. <laughs> but you got to be surfing for what? 50 years before you can make that claim? Right, that, until you make that call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so you got a long way to go out there, peeps. <laughs> yeah. So I've been surfing. This year I'll have been surfing, let's see, I started in 65. 55 years. That's close. 
And all right, so before before we wrap anything up or let you go, we gotta ask you one last thing about. <laughs> this is another wash your question. <laughs> I'm gonna give him a load of shit. <laughs> no, I thought that was good. I didn't, no, no, his is great. I'm stoked, Matt. You got to talk to Matt. Yeah, yeah. I I, I talked to him after Reno too, and because did you ever uh, hear or read about their little exchange? No. Well, they didn't. It wasn't a direct exchange or anything like that. But Reno just took it so wrong. Matt's, you know, very generous, very kind um, evaluation of Reno, or not evaluation, biography. And, and he couldn't get in touch with Reno. He tried so hard, so he just, he said what he knew. He did his best. Yeah, and he, I think he made one or two very minor mistakes, like how much assumptions. money he made. Yeah, assumptions. Not even, it was just like, oh, he made 600, not 400 or something. And Reno lit him up. And it was just like, dude, this guy just gave you the most generous biography. Anyway, this one is just about you learning to surf and just the beginning, what was that like? What kind of board and how old were you and what was the... What was that whole thing? Well, we kind of touched on the mat riding. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, right. That was so when you grow up in beginning. Australia in that era, in the 60s, like, so I was born in the 50s, but I was at the beach since I was a little kid because my parents were beach people. My dad didn't surf, but he was in the clubbies, the lifeguards, right, which is a volunteer. So in those days, your progression was you went into the clubbies, like the junior lifeguards, because your dad was in the clubbies. Surfboard riding clubs had not even happened yet, you know, so that... The first clubs in, in, in our hometown, and we have two of the most famous ones, which is Cura, Cura Board Riders and, and Snapper Rocks. Those are two of the most famous clubs in Australia. They're on opposite ends of the town, Cura Point and Snapper Rocks. And those didn't start until 63, 64. Cura was first. So your natural progression is you went into the, into the clubbies. And so I was in Tweed Heads and Coolangatta Club, which is right at the corner right there if you've been to Coolangatta at the where the hill is on the superbank you go over the top and uh and Michael Peterson and I and Tommy his brother were all in the clubbies you know you have your locker and then you have to come put your little cap on and do your patrols that's how you get your locker in the club you have to volunteer on a weekend to you know save lives and something goes wrong so because you're in the clubbies and we were we were mat riding and cool light boards and and we really didn't have surfboards yet and, uh, but we were in the water and we were in the, in the lifeguard swims and rowing the canoes and the boats. And so we were in the ocean. We knew a, a lot about the ocean already. But the, da- the old man said, look, you, you're not getting a surfboard until you get your bronze medallion, which is you get this bronze medallion and you have to go through the full program of lifeguarding and then you're a qualified lifeguard. And so I get my bronze medallion in uh, 64. I still have the medallion. It's super cool to have, right? And, uh, and dad's, I come home one afternoon and my mum said, hey, son, uh, dad says you can have a surfboard for Christmas. Go around to Joe Larkin's, because dad was a mate with Joe Larkin, which is a long, another long story about how that happened. And uh, so I go around there and I order my first board. A eight foot six, uh, stage three, green oak fin, uh, uh, royal blue on the bottom white deck but unbeknownst to me my mum and my uncle uncle is Tom Beetson is the sign writer for the town that in those days you didn't have this kind of thing every sign was hand painted you know and he did all the signs tells my uncle Tom to go around to Joe Larkins who he had done signs for Joe Larkins and stuff and he paints my name on the deck Peter Townend which was kind of 
like not kind of cool, not right? Cool. <laughs> and I don't see it till I go around to pick it up, right? Imagine if we still had that board today, what that board would be worth. Oh my God. Right? With my name painted on it. But my mum's theory on why she did that, so nobody could steal my board. <laughs> Mom's pretty smart. Yeah. Mom definitely steered you in the right direction. So where, so where the name stop. was, I used to put extra layers of wax so you might not be able to read the name. <laughs> Learn how to do a good wax. So that was Christmas 65. And, uh, and my first waves I rode were in those days, it wasn't Superbank, it was Snapper Rocks, Rainbow Bay, Greenmount Point, Kira. My first day I paddled out at Rainbow Bay off the little rock that when you come down through Superbank, it's right here. And there were little right handers coming off there. And that was my first day surfing, Christmas Day in 65. And my grandma's house. My grandma's house is on the beach at Greenmount, like having the house at Malibu, Malibu uh, on, the uh, on the point. And so I, I would leave my board at grandma's house, pedal home from school from Tweed River, four miles on my bike, down to grandma's house to go surfing, you know, after school. And, uh, and that's how I got started. And so until, until the boards got shorter and that, and I would have my boards would be going with people, I surfed out of grandma's house. <laughs> And it was only two years later that you uh, It only took me a little while and all of a sudden I was, I competed in 69, didn't do any good and then in 70 I made it into the Queensland team and I was in that Queensland team for the next seven years straight and never won the Australian title, runner up five times to oh, all yeah, different yeah. people. Wow. Simon Anderson, Michael Peterson, Mark Warren, Terry Fitzgerald, <laughs> Richard Harvey. I never won one. Five times I was the second. Those are some big names right there. You stepped right up next to them and you, and you well, that, took them that, in the end, My right? consistency was that's how I won the world title. Remember, I didn't win an event, right. I, I, but I was in every final just about. Mm. And that's why I was world champ. And it was the same, same Kathy. And same thing, you know, like I, I, I was recognized as one of Australia's greatest at that time, but I, I, I would always get in the final. <laughs> they would call me the bridesmaid, never the, <laughs> never the bride. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. I love it. I think you got enough there, boys. I think we got enough, yeah. <laughs> that was, what, that about was, 40 minutes, right? Yeah, something like that, but it's... it's it's just so easy yeah. to eat that up, you know, and, and just the people who, who listen to us just, you know, it's, it's not it's not like high energy consumption, you know. It's right. easy to just drive and, and listen as you go, so. Okay, we've got to get the, the selfie here. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you thought of that because I always forget that part. Yeah. I'll send it to yeah, you. Yeah, send that to there me, please. There we go.